Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell the story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. Midnight Myth, everybody's favorite history, mythology, philosophy, and how those subjects bubble up into our popular storytelling podcast. As always, I am very excited to be... Wait a second. This isn't right. Doesn't somebody else usually do this part? That's right, friends. It's just me, Laurel, in the studio today, bringing you some bonus content. As you may know, at the end of July, director David Lowry and A24 finally released the long-delayed film The Green Knight exclusively in theaters. And as you'll almost certainly know if you're a longtime listener of The Midnight Myth, I am a devoted student of the Arthurian legend and a lover of fantasy and mythology, so this movie really felt tailor-made for me. Because Derek and I are parents of a seven-month-old baby, getting out of the house to a movie is a bigger deal than it was in our past life, global pandemic notwithstanding. But having waited considerably longer than a year and a day for this movie to come out, I took a chance to get out and see it on my own. So, since we weren't able to see it together, and thus I haven't had anyone to discuss this movie with, I'm here to discuss it with you. This bonus episode will cover some of my initial thoughts about the movie, an analysis of how it transforms the source material, and a few key themes and symbols that I think are worth exploring. Before we undertake this quest, I am obliged to let you know that we have a few things in the hopper here at The Midnight Myth. Our next full episode is on the Hayao Miyazaki classic Princess Mononoke, a personal favorite of mine and something we've wanted to do for a long time. I also have a feeling that episode will share a few motifs with this one, so definitely stay tuned. 
Meanwhile, we have a podcast project called The Wheel of Ka, in which Derek and his co-host Steve read through every single book in the repertoire of bestseller Stephen King, and they're currently working on an episode surrounding The Mist. So keep an eye out for that in the coming weeks. We would also love to hear from you on social media. We are at The Midnight Myth on Twitter. We're on Instagram at Midnight Myth Podcast, and we're on Facebook. We're on the web at midnightmyth.com, and that's a really great starting point for blogs and extra content, plus ways to support us. You can also consider leaving a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts if you like what you hear. And if you don't, then do us a favor and keep it to yourself. Now, shall we complete our game? I'd like to start with a brief overview of the source material for Lowry's film, the 14th century poetic romance, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. Composed in alliterative Middle English by an anonymous poet, and notably with a Cheshire accent, the verse is almost unintelligible to contemporary readers. So you pretty much have to seek out a modern translation of it if you want to enjoy the poem. It survives in only one manuscript, along with three other poems known as Patience, Purity, and Pearl. Based on some similarities in the writing, it's pretty reasonable to assume that all of these were uh, composed by the same poet, So the author of Gawain is sometimes known as the Pearl Poet or just the Gawain Poet. This one manuscript was actually almost destroyed in a fire, so it's really lucky that we have it because Sir Gawain and the Green Knight is considered a masterpiece, the finest chivalric poem of the Middle Ages. Ironically, though, it it really wasn't widely read or honestly discovered until the 19th century when there was a pretty big renaissance of Arthurian content. A few years after its rediscovery, Alfred Lorne Tennyson was writing his Idols of the King, and the Pre-Raphaelites were making artwork based on the legend, so Arthur was kind of having a comeback. The poem begins with a description of the downfall of Troy and the legendary founding of Britain by Brutus of Troy, naming Arthur as the greatest of kings descended from that royal line. Then we move to Arthur and his knights, celebrating Christmastide at the court of Camelot. Arthur is looking for entertainment, not wanting to break bread until he's seen some kind of marvel. Then as if on cue, a giant knight rides in on a horse, bearing a sprig of holly and wearing a massive axe. He's also green, head to toe. The green knight offers a Christmas game to the court, challenging a champion to land a blow against him, agreeing to have it returned in one year and one day. If he honors this game, the champion will receive the Green Knight's axe as a gift. Arthur wants to take up the challenge himself, but his nephew Sir Gawain, the finest knight at the court, steps up, looking to prove himself and to spare his king. Gawain cuts off the Green Knight's head, but the knight picks it right up off the floor, pulls a face at a horrified Queen Guinevere, and takes off with a see you later at the Green Chapel, Gawain. The year ends up going by really quickly, and as the new year approaches, Gawain sets off for the Green Chapel to fulfill his troth. There is a marvelous sequence where he's dressed in his armorial bearing. He wears the pentangle as a symbol of his devotion to the five senses, his five fingers, the five wounds of Christ, the five joys of Mary, and the five traits of chivalry. There are a lot of fives in the poem. Now, along his perilous journey, Gawain finds hospitality at the castle of Lord Bertilac, which he discovers is only a short journey from the Green Chapel. 
So he agrees to stay there while he awaits his appointment with the Green Knight. And everyone at the court is really excited to meet the great Sir Gawain, Arthur's greatest knight. Gawain notices the presence of an unnamed elderly woman at the court. I wonder if she will come up later. What follows this is a lengthy sequence referred to as the exchange of winnings. Gawain and Lord Bertilak agree to a fairly rash compact. Bertilak will hunt each day while Gawain rests in the castle, and Bertilak promises to give Gawain whatever he wins in the hunt if Gawain promises to give Bertilak whatever he may receive while in the castle. So Lord Bertilak hunts, and on the first day, Lady Bertilak, his wife, enters Gawain's room and tries to seduce him. He resists sleeping with the wife of his host, but gives in to a kiss. When the Lord returns and gives Gawain the deer he killed, Gawain gives Lord Bertilak a kiss. The next day, the same happens, with Gawain agreeing to two kisses from Lady Bertilak, which he then gives to her husband in exchange for a boar from the hunt. Now, on the third day, Gawain refuses a gift of a ring from Lady B, but he does accept a green girdle that is supposedly magic. Lady Bertilak promises that if he wears it, no harm will come to him. This seems like exactly what he needs to escape the green chapel with his head. Gawain accepts three kisses and promises to keep the girdle secret at the lady's behest. The Lord returns and gives Gawain the fox that he's killed, and Gawain gives him the three kisses, but he does not mention the green girdle. Shortly thereafter, Gawain sets off to meet the green knight, but he's wearing the girdle, and he expects he'll be able to keep his head because of it. The question is, can he keep his head and keep his honor? When he gets to the chapel, the green knight takes up the axe, Gawain flinches at the first blow, but not at the second. However, the knight misses. On the third blow, he lets Gawain off with only a nick on the neck. Then, surprise, the green knight says, guess what? I'm actually Lord Bertilak in disguise. All this was set up by Morgan Le Fay, King Arthur's sorceress half-sister. That old lady back at the castle? That's her! She did all this to mess with you and Arthur's knights and freak out Guinevere because she hates her. I was never really going to cut off your head, but I did have to graze you a little bit because you didn't tell me about that sash you're wearing. Yep, I know about that too, and about everything that went on with my wife back at the castle. That was all part of the plan. But it's okay, because you've still proven yourself the greatest knight on earth in this impossible situation. So totally rattled, Gawain goes back to Camelot, wearing the green girdle as a reminder of his shame. After all, he broke his promise and has left the green chapel with his honor besmirched, at least in his own estimation. But when he gets home, he's actually celebrated for for surviving the adventure, and Arthur's knights adopt the green sash as the latest fashion. Womp womp. Now, I've written extensively on this failure theme in the original poem, so if you want a little more of my thoughts on that, head to MidnightMyth.com and check out the blog post titled The Worldly and the Sublime, Frodo's Departure from Middle-Earth. It's full of Gawain thoughts as read through The Lord of the Rings, so it's a ton of fun. I'll link it in the show notes as well. That's a pretty brief summary of the events of the poem, which I highly recommend reading or revisiting if you haven't in a while. In my opinion, a poem like Sir Gawain and the Green Knight is best read aloud or heard, so I especially recommend checking out the audiobook version of J.R.R. Tolkien's translation, because it's narrated by 
the late great Terry Jones, and it's wonderful. You really get the music of the meter and the full effect of the alliteration that way, which I think is critical. Like I said, the poem is heralded as the finest medieval chivalric romance and a landmark piece of literature. It's a compelling narrative, rich with theme and symbolism, and it's an astonishing use of language with a mathematically precise structure. I could talk about a single stanza for hours, honestly, but I also have a movie to discuss, so let's get into it. If you don't seek spoilers for 2021's The Green Knight, then go no further, for your doom is at hand. All right. Just people who have seen the movie or want it spoiled for them now? Great. I will start by saying that I loved The Green Knight in kind of an unexpected way. It's a visually arresting work of surreal fantasy, and it tells its story with such deliberation and authenticity. I recognize that it's definitely not for everyone, but on a first watch, it felt to me like a marriage of Excalibur and the Seventh Seal, with a little bit of Cocteau surrealism thrown in, so I was pretty much in heaven. It's romantic and it's expressionistic, turning Gawain's state of mind inside out onto the explosive canvas of the quest landscape. I loved it. It's not an adaptation of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight so much as a response to it, as though Lowry were creating an alternate history of Gawain. I should also mention that pronunciation-wise, I have been going with Gawain since it's kind of my default, but most of the characters in the movie use Gawain, which is also appropriate. Sean Harris, who plays King Arthur, is giving us an inexplicable Garwin, but whatever, man, do you? The original Welsh character's name is Gwalkmai, so I don't see any reason to get precious about the pronunciation here. But when I say it's a response or an alternate history, the crux of what I mean is this. Sir Gawain and the Green Knight is about failure. It's an untested knight who nevertheless presents himself as perfect, learning through a quest and a failed test of honor, that he is not who he thought he was. It's also about the failure of chivalry, the martial and moral structure to which knights aspire to stand up to difficult tests. Chivalry and King Arthur's court itself are proven hypocritical through the series of challenges Gawain undergoes. In other words, Morgan's trick proves that chivalry doesn't actually work. It doesn't give him the framework that he needs to be the moral knight he wants to be. 2021's The Green Knight, on the other hand, is about a would-be knight who learns, through several failed tests, the true price of honor, and agrees to pay it. Gawain touches failure many times, and recognizing that he cannot keep his honor and his head, considers which one he'd rather sacrifice. I think it's worth mentioning the difficulty in adapting a poem like this for the screen— not only is it chock full of medieval sensibility, chivalric themes that don't necessarily resonate with contemporary audiences, but the language itself is the engine and the shining star of the poem. In the medium of cinema, you lose that method of communication. You have dialogue available to you, obviously, but in general, you're not going to give us alliterative verse. Lowry, along with his production designer, Jade Healy, and director of photography, Andrew Draws Palermo, to their credit, use visual and cinematic language as their engine. For something adapted from a very wordy piece of literature, it's extremely light on dialogue, relying on the striking images to tell the story. One great example is how Lowry's team translates the passing year onto film. 
In the poem, it's a gorgeous and evocative sequence in which the poet describes with great specificity the changing of the seasons in the natural world. Here's a quote from that passage that'll give you an idea. Leaves fall, loosened from lindens, then drift to the ground, and all gray is the grass that was green just a bit before. And then everything ripens and rots that once rose high, and so the year yields with the passing of yesterdays. Gorgeous, love the alliteration, fantastic. And that's the translation from James Wilhelm. In The Green Knight, this is all done wordlessly through a really ominous Punch and Judy style puppet show that's repeated with slight variations as an illustrated wheel turns. It conveys the swiftly passing year, the growing sense of dread around Gawain's number coming up, and the attitudes of the people watching everything play out. In the film, Gawain himself is not yet a knight, just Arthur's ne'er-do-well nephew, a boy who's holding himself back from greatness. Lowry rearranges some characters and makes Morgan Le Fay Gawain's mother. I was a little apprehensive about this change at first, knowing Morgan's ultimate role in the events of the story. In much of the tradition, Gawain's mother is actually more gauze, Arthur's other half-sister, and a lot of contemporary adaptations tend to conflate these two characters, often turning Morgan into a really uninterested and kind of banal villain. But I was really happy to see that they use this change to tell a kind of fascinating story about a mother and a son. Instead of being motivated purely by a hatred of Guinevere, Morgan becomes a more complex and inscrutable force through the narrative. But yes, that blindfolded elderly woman at Castle Bertilac is Morgan, Gawain's mother. Do with that knowledge whatever you will. Overall, I think it's actually a smart move to retool the narrative this way. Give Gawain a more accessible motivation because it drives the story, it communicates these modern themes, and let's be honest, the beheading game is pretty nonsensical to a modern audience. Gawain wants to stop being a layabout and become a knight, but to do so, he has to resist temptation, he has to prove his worthiness, and keep his word. All easier said than done when you're presented with a temptation around every corner, and keeping your honor means meeting the business end of an axe. We also get this twisted ending, which I thought was clever. It had all the horror, whimsy, and heart of the story all wrapped up in one sequence. Gawain meets the Green Knight, but can't go through with losing his head and runs away back to Camelot. In a wordless series of vignettes, he becomes a knight, then succeeds his uncle as king. Essel, Gawain's lower-class lover, gives birth to a son, which he takes from her side. He marries a noblewoman and fathers a daughter with her. He leads his armies in a brutal war and watches his beloved son die, then sees his own people turn on him. All this time, he's still wearing the magical green girdle. We see him sheltered in his throne room while enemies try to batter down the door when he finally removes the girdle as though he's pulling it from deep inside his body. Once it's removed, his head falls to the floor. Now, I figured out what Lowry was doing here pretty quickly, but I still enjoyed it. We cut right back to Gawain in the Green Chapel, where he once again kneels and removes the girdle, proclaiming, I'm ready now. The Green Knight, whose face in a really subtle effects shot has been revealed to contain the faces of Lord Bertilac, Morgan, King Arthur, and a ton of other characters, smiles and congratulates the knight on a job well done before saying, off with your head and cutting cheerily to the title card. 
It's cheeky, it's moving, and ultimately it's triumphant. It's hardly the failure-laced satirical ending of the poem, but it feels to me like an appropriate contemporary response. Given the dreamlike nature of the journey and the emphasis on repetition and cycles, I like to imagine that this Gawain has undergone this journey before, multiple times, as though it's a repeated series of tests and challenges undertaken over and over, like a karmic cycle or the afterlife test in The Good Place, with Gawain finally arriving at this most honorable of choices. Now, does Lowry intend for us to read it this way? I don't know, probably not, but that felt kind of right to me. There's also an undeniable presence of supernatural or divine aid throughout the film. Most of this intervention I ascribe to Morgan herself. She's the one who summons the Green Knight, prompting her son to step up and seek out his honor. Did she intend for him to lose his head, or was this an unintended consequence? Is that why she introduces the enchanted and protective green girdle? And then, once he loses it, reappears in the Lord and Lady's castle so that it might be returned to him? Is Gawain's fox companion an extension or a manifestation of Morgan's magic? And if so, why does the fox warn Gawain to turn back from his quest for honor? Lowry doesn't give us these answers, but he lets us sit in the ambiguity. The appearance of Lady Bertilac, who's played like Essel by Alicia Vikander, is another mystery that's never resolved. But like the girdle or the axe, it feels like the return of something lost through an unexpected and supernatural means. Or the way elements from our waking lives become untangled and reassembled in new forms in our dreams. I'd like to turn an eye to one more sequence in the film, and that's the encounter with St. Winifred. It's not a part of the original poem, but plucked from legends surrounding the Welsh saint. Despite having nothing to do with the source material or the Arthurian matter, it slots in nicely to Gawain's tale because so much of the symbolism is complementary. I really loved this chapter because it was unexpected and it felt like a horror movie in miniature. You could take the scene and expand it into a really lovely and spooky short film that I would absolutely watch. St. Winifred was a Welsh martyr who lived around the 7th century. When she announced her intentions to become a nun, a suitor of hers named Caradog flew into a rage and cut off her head. St. Bono, who is in the tradition her uncle, discovered her head lying at the bottom of a spring and reunited it with her body. Winifred was then restored to life and Caradog was punished by God, literally being swallowed up into the ground. Then, according to legend, St. Bono proclaimed that anyone who stood near the well and asked three times for God's grace in the name of St. Winifred would have it granted. In The Green Knight, Gawain sort of fulfills that promise of St. Bono's. He comes across Winifred's home and wellspring while desperate for shelter and rest. A ghostly Winifred then appears, annoyed that there's someone in her bed, and she tells Gawain her story— asking him to retrieve her head from the bottom of the spring. Gawain asks what he'll get in return, which is, I mean, super uncool, considering the pillars of chivalry demand that he do virtuous things for their own sake, especially when women are concerned. So Gawain dives in and gets the head, which is now just a skull, and in a creepy sequence, restores it to the skeleton he now finds lying in the bed. Winifred, in return gives Gawain the Green Knight's axe, which a few scenes earlier had been taken from him by scavengers. 
This interlude from the main quest brings up some really interesting meditations on the beheading motif. To separate the head from the body is a gruesome, swift, and final end. But the Green Knight's beheading challenge is framed as a game. He's unharmed by his decapitation. And there are numerous important beheadings in folklore and mythology with a really similar outcome. We think of Ben de Gadefran or Bran the Blessed from Welsh mythology, um, and Orpheus comes to mind as well. Both of these characters are beheaded, yet the head itself continues to speak, sing, entertain, or full-on party, independent of the body. We talk about both of those myths in our episode Sweet Summer Child, a character study of Bran Stark from Game of Thrones, so I would definitely check that out for a little bit more detail. But in Winifred's case, beheading is anything but a game. She's the victim of a brutal killing, and she haunts this place seeking an honorable man to restore what she's lost. This happens to intersect really powerfully with another Gawain story, in fact. And specifically, I'm referring to the book of Tor and Pelennor in Sir Thomas Mallory's landmark Arthurian text, Le Mort d'Arthur. In this section, an amped-up Sir Gawain accidentally beheads a woman. As punishment, he wears those, the woman's severed head around his neck as a mark of his disgrace as he returns to court, and he pledges henceforth to become a champion of women. He eventually goes on to be known as a knight of maidens. He's never associated with one woman, but as a champion for all women, which is a little bit conflicting with his, uh, you know, his reputation as a womanizer, but he's a figure who goes through many and many, many, many iterations. So this Winifred episode in The Green Knight, read through an intertextual lens, is a profoundly moving exercise for Gawain. The knight who elsewhere in the legend brutally murdered a woman by removing her head now makes amends through the restoration of another. The green girdle, the head of a victim, the neck wound, these marks of shame that Gawain bears at varying points in the tradition are symbolically absolved in this movie. Now, I could go on for hours about Arthurian Easter eggs, like the encounter on the battlefield in which the scavenger alludes to a king mowing down 900-plus enemies with one blow. That's actually a reference to Arthur's exaggerated kill numbers at the Battle of Mount Baden, as listed by some of the Latin chronicles. And honestly, I'm sure on a second viewing, I'll have even more to analyze, but I'd like to leave you with just a few words about my overall impression from this movie. What it said the loudest, at least to me, was, what's lost can be found again. What is taken from you can be returned. And what you sacrifice can be restored. Whether that's a loved one, an axe, a girdle, your head, or your honor. And until next time, be kind. Be kind. 